You are listening to the Motherhood Unstressed Podcast, and I'm your host, Liz Carlisle. Welcome back. Welcome to a fresh week. I am so glad that you're here, as always. This week, I'm speaking with Bob Gardner. He's also known as the Freedom Specialist. Bob's story is truly remarkable, and I can't wait for you to hear it directly from him. Bob's journey from addiction, contemplating divorce and suicide, to becoming a beacon of hope for thousands is nothing short of inspiring. Today, we're diving into his body-based approach to happiness, health, and well-being. He's the founder of The Freedom Specialist, author of Built for Freedom, and host of the podcast Alive and Free. Now, In 18 years, Bob completely transformed his life, breaking free from addictive patterns when everyone said it couldn't be done. His mission now is to share his unique tools with the world so that people can find happiness, health, and well-being on autopilot. In this episode, we're exploring how Bob incorporates martial arts, breathwork, and other healing modalities to help people permanently overcome challenges like chronic pain, anxiety, depression, and more. His mantra, freedom is a skill, not a pill, captures the essence of his teachings. So if you've ever felt trapped, overwhelmed, or just curious about achieving lasting freedom and happiness, then this episode is for you. So please enjoy this episode with Bob Gardner. Well, hello, Bob. Welcome to the show. I'm so glad that you're here. Yeah, me too. This is going to be great. I'm excited for the conversation. Yeah. And this is a question that I routinely ask to guests, but I think it's such a great way to get behind the why of the work that you're doing. So can you take us through, I don't know, the major or minor events in your life that led you to the work that you're doing now? Yeah, I, I, this could be a long story. So let's keep it brief, shall we? Um, Mm -hmm. I, I was I moved around a lot as a kid. So I would say that even though at the time I didn't really look at that as something that could potentially lead somewhere down a negative road and then a positive one, um, I often felt like I didn't belong in a lot of places. And I think that built up some sense of feeling like an alien and feeling like I needed to measure up and constant worry about being accepted or feeling like there was something wrong with me. And I think that led eventually to discovering that well, you know, if I spent a lot of time looking at pornography, I felt better than when I was worried about whether or not people liked me. So that ended up in what people often call like a pornography addiction or sexual addiction. I obviously use way different terminology um, with regard to that. And that was 18 years of my life. It almost landed landed me with a divorce, uh, you know, losing my wife and kids. It really didn't make me very productive at work. And so I was struggling to get along, was very suicidal for a period of time. Uh, not wanting to be alive, but not wanting to kill myself because I didn't want to create pain for other people. So it was them that made me stay, even though if I'd had my own choice, I would have just ended it there. And then we moved to Arizona. I was running a Kung Fu school at the time. (laughs) And, And something about like sitting on the roof, I just started sitting on the roof watching the sunset day in and day out and just was like what is going on in my head and those like 20 minutes started to like lessen my desire to die and then at a certain point i had a weird vision of my life as like a 90 year old where i was still struggling with the same thing and i was like this is i can't handle that for another six decades (laughs) i gotta change and so I sort of tossed out all the stuff that I had been taught that addiction is going to last forever, that depression and anxiety are things you're always going to have to cope with, or stress is a fact of life. And 
like all those years in 12 step programs and counseling and therapy and all these online things that I'd learned. I was like, look, none of this obviously has worked. So let me find a way and let me figure out what's really going on at the base of it. So I quickly tried some things that were stupid. (laughs) My wife did not appreciate them, but in the process of trial and error, I found some things that worked really, really well and really, really quickly, not just to control an addictive mindset, but to actually like no longer have the urge to where it felt like all of that stuff happened to a different person. And mm-hmm. I just have access to their memory banks mm-hmm. and uh, depression disappeared and the anxiousness disappeared. And my relationship changed with my wife, my ability to interact with other people. I wasn't taking things so personally all the time just by working with the body at the core. And I, didn't actually help anybody with that for a long time. It was like a number of years. I was just like, okay, I'm a weirdo. I figured something out, moving on with my life. And then I had a a business guy go, dude, there's a lot of people struggling with the stuff that you're talking about and nobody has a good answer. You should help them. (laughs) I was Mm. like, oh, okay. And so I, back in 2017, just put my life story online in a big video. I probably should have told my family first. (laughs) order of operations a little bit. <laughs> um, and started helping people back in 2017. And it's been over a thousand people now that we've yeah. helped. Right. And you have a podcast, you have a book out, um, you are just going, going, going all the time. What do you find is the number one reason or the most prevalent reason that people come to you? Is it physical pain or is it addiction? Most of the time, it it started out as addiction because that's what I knew how to talk about. And so in the beginning, it was addiction to predominantly sexual addiction and pornography at first. And then it started to spread to other types of addictions. And then their spouses started to come Mm -hmm. and then their friends would get referred. And so then we started seeing people with, uh, you know, depression, betrayal, trauma, PTSD, stuff like that, that started to show up. And then the people with panic attacks started to show up. And then all of a sudden we started seeing people with chronic pain and fibromyalgia and autoimmune diseases show up and they started getting some, a lot of help. So it's evolved over time. Uh, and so it just sort of depends on where people are at when they see the message. Did you know, or when was the moment that you realized like, okay, yes, this is exactly what I need to be doing. What I was, what all of that that I went through is, was meant for this. Do you remember a certain moment? I remember it was the first time. So my business partner, he came on, like, it was just me for a long time. And then he was like, I want to help. I want to learn how to do this stuff. And I want you to train me how to do it. And I was like, okay, cool. So he started training and his first client that he started working with was his sister. Mm-hmm. And he walked, we worked her through this whole process and she had some great results. And I didn't hear much about it other than him asking me questions about how to do stuff. And then about a year later, I was reading through some of the answers that were in the system of some of the questions we'd asked and some of the responses. And I read this response from her that was like, I used to look in the mirror every day and hate myself and want to kill myself and end my life and think that I was a worthless. And now none of that happens anymore. And I love my life and I don't want to die anymore. And there was just this really clean energy that came from that, like something that I had created I didn't have to sit there and like work at, but it could be used by someone else to help another person that I'd never met finally get rid of something that I knew intimately well in my own life. And that 
the the knowledge that it could be passed on and it didn't have to be me doing it was something so energizing. I was like, okay, this is really significant. Wow. Wow. What a moment. I mean, I think if I would have been reading that, like I would have burst into tears. I mean, that is just such a huge moment. I can't believe we didn't share that with you. (laughs) (laughs) I, yeah, it was a sister. I don't know. I I was in tears when I read it. I was like, okay, this is really significant. Like to recognize, you know, that the processes I've developed are are things that they, they go beyond me having enough charisma to convince somebody that I'm right. Like they can be used by other people and still produce results. Right. But I think that's, that's the whole point, right? It's not just a lot of good talk. It's not just a charismatic, funny personality. It It's really working for people. So can we get into what exactly you do to help? What goes on? Yeah. So um, I had the challenge essentially, and you know, those of you that read the book will see this, essentially the entire paradigm of the psychology industry and some of the medical industry, uh, not because they're not out helping people. And I think that needs to be made clear. There's a lot of people out there that are therapists, counselors, psychologists, psychiatrists, medical practitioners of all sorts that have helped a lot of people. Um, but the foundations of their industry are built on this idea that these are diseases, that they don't go away, that it's something wrong with the body and it needs to be fixed. That idea actually sh- showed up way long time ago with good old Plato. <laughs> <laughs> and it got passed, it subsumed into Christian culture, and then it got passed along and eventually just informed everything that if the body's doing something like this, depression, anxiety, addiction, trauma, stuff like that, then that's that needs to be fixed. We need to stop it from doing that. And I went back and I was like, what if that's not the issue? What if what if addiction, as we call it, is actually a solution? It's a good thing. It's it's an indication that the body is actually functioning well. And to a problem that's perceived or to another problem. And if we resolve that initial issue, then we can go down. Then we can, then all of a sudden the solution is no longer needed and it goes away by itself. So I started asking like, what is addiction? And that's where I realized that in all of the medical research and all of the psychological research and all the literature everywhere, never in the history of humanity has there ever been found a molecule of addiction. There isn't, it's not a thing that people are struggling with that be diagnosed and the same with depression. And if you start to interview each person, they use the same label. And yet each person's experience is vastly different. So I was like, what is happening? And how do I, in my own self, just navigate with what's happening in me instead of like assuming that all the literature on the topic is actually accurate for my body and my life. And what it boiled down to is what I could actually see, taste, you know, smell, feel, touch, you know, all of this stuff. My breathing was off. My movement quality was really tense or was really jerky. Uh, My visual focus was a certain way. My posture was a certain way. Uh, What I was eating was was maybe subpar, if you count a lot of sugar binges as subpar. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Depends on who you are on that one, I guess. But there was a lot of things that I could look at. And I was like, if I just look at how at ease my body is, it correlates very well with all the times when I act out or when I feel depressed or anything else like that. The less at ease I feel, the more discomfort there is, the more I end up doing stuff or feeling things that I don't like. So I was like, how do I just train my body to instinctively be at ease regardless of the outside situation? 
And so I, I mean, I'd trained for years in martial arts. I'd trained in all these other body certifications and all these other different types of modalities to try and understand my nervous system and what was going on. And down at the core of it was basically two problems. Uh, one, perception. I was seeing the world in a way that wasn't actually accurate. Mm -hmm. So I was assuming a lot of things. And when, as soon as I could see through that, then all of a sudden, a lot of the problems disappeared. The other problem was habitual tensions in the body. And so I just simple processes like breathing and movement practices, ways I stood and ways I started to pay attention to my body gave me the capacity to when emotions arose or thoughts arose, I could go back to my body and go, what are these things built on? Because they're all byproducts of a body. My brain's not in touch with the outside world. So it's relying on my body to tell it what's going on. And if my body's uncomfortable anyway, then it doesn't matter what's outside. <laughs> it's going to tell the brain, whatever's out there is uncomfortable. And then I'll freak out pretending it's that. So what happened was, okay, cool. This stuff comes up. I go back to my body. I find out where the tension is. I start to relax it. And then all of a sudden the emotions and the thoughts and the fears and the worries and everything else goes away. And what I'm left with is clarity about what's actually out there. And if it is a problem, I can deal with it without all the extra emotional kerfuffle. Why isn't this taught to our children in school? That's a great question. I I can I have some theories about maybe why, um, but I think in general it's just I mean it's there's not even Plato was off. <laughs> <laughs> it's like an inheritance of there's a lot of deep wisdom like that's out there like go you know take a deep breath go on a walk you know we say those types of things but without an understanding of why those types of things are regular. Or, or are helpful. And a lot of them end up being encoded in a lot of religious traditions. So like the way people sing or the way they pray actually ends up activating the body in a really powerful way. But then we confuse that with like, well, all the religious overtones of it. And sometimes we miss the beauty of the fact that this body is built a certain way. Yeah. Do you think that the body is an intelligent organism in itself? Or is it so intimately connected with the spirit and the mind? Ah. I don't know. In the, I mean, that's a great question. It seems that every nerve, every cell in the body has the ability to learn and to respond to its environment independently. And then those nerve cells and other cells kind of interconnect. And so like you have a massive gut microbiome. It's got 450 million nerves, neurons in there, which is about the size of a golden retriever's brain. You know, it's pretty good size. And it has the capacity to adapt to what's in the intestinal tract and to send messages up to the brain to spur different types of things happening in the rest of the body in such a way that there's like a real intelligent being sort of inside the gut. And it's making decisions about how we feel and when to get up in the morning and how much energy we're going to have and all that kind of stuff. And that's not necessarily happening up here. Right. Then you got your heart, which has like 40,000 neurons in the atrioventricular node itself, which is a small amount in comparison, but it has the largest electromagnetic field. And it's like basically the first responder to everything that's going on. Mm -hmm. So even the light that comes from the sun passes through that field first and touches the heart before it hits the eyeball. And so your heart's already responding to the outside world, closing itself off or opening it up, changing its, its rhythms. And that's then affecting the breathing and all this other stuff before the brain ever gets wind of something that's gone on. So there's this tremendous intelligence in every area of the body 
that the brain is just trying to make a conscious experience at it, weaving it together in whatever ways it can. And what we see is actually the, one of the slowest things that shows up. So we hear sounds, and that's one of the fastest ones. So the DJ's already in there mixing tunes and popping beats and doing all this stuff already before the soundtrack's on before the lights show up. And so we're already interpreting our reality in a way that's not really directly visual. Right. And so like how much of that is interconnected with the spirit? I don't know. Mm. Uh, that's a great question. Um, but uh, it does seem quite apparent that the body itself is loaded with a level of intelligence that if we were willing to get out of the mind for a second and quit trying to fix everything with our mind and allow ourselves to think with our bodies, not in the sort of like primeval way, like become a beast, but like really tap into the intelligence of the body, the kinds of possibilities that are available for people. I mean, the kind of absolute instinctive autopilot bliss that happens inside my body all the time. I didn't even know it was possible when I was a kid. Yeah. You know, I, I thought think, you had drugs, you know. Right. I think most people listening to this right now don't truly understand what that means unless they've experienced it themselves, like unless they've done ayahuasca or something, you know, like done an out-of-body experience. What how can we begin to start to prime our bodies to connect with our bodies in a way? that gets us to that point to where it is like you're kind of living and existing in bliss. And if you move out of that, boom, you're aware and you can self-regulate again. Yeah, the, the reality is it, it boils down to chemistry and tension as the most practical ways to work things. Right. So the more tense you are and likely if most of us don't know how tense we are, yeah. <laughs> right. We think, Oh no, I am relaxed. And then there's, deeper and deeper layers of relaxation that can be accessed. That tension is squeezing off blood flow, which is your source of life and oxygen. And it's, you know, imagine a heart sitting there and you just squeeze it lightly and expect it to function the same way, <laughs> you know, and that happens with all of our organs and all of our connective tissues. So the more that you practice relaxing, and I don't mean like on a massage table, that's helpful. That can help dig, dig into some deep things. But I mean, like, how do you open the car door? How do you cut vegetables? How do you, are you comfortable when you sit in a chair, like really, truly comfortable to where your body feels light and easy? Like you practice relaxation in the simplest things. When somebody, when you feel yourself get angry because someone cut you off in traffic, how quickly do you relax that? Mm. That training now opens up the, the pathways and the floodgates of all these rivers of life that go through the system. That's what carries all this buoyant energy. It's all like your blood and your lymph and, you know, the cerebrospinal fluid that runs along the nerves and stuff. Those rivers of life are really where the juice is at. How long do you think it would take the average American who does drive a lot on the U.S. highways and does deal with a lot of, you know, stressful situations, especially parents? How long does it take before you start feeling the benefits? Like, like they're listening to this and like, okay, I'm going to start becoming more self-aware. I'm going to start relaxing myself, being just more aware of the tension in my body. Is it immediate? Is it six months? When can they start noticing a relinquishing of pain and, and tension? So there's two answers to that. The first is the moment you feel pain release, you feel pain release. And so it will be immediate. How long that lasts needs to be trained. Mm -hmm. So like, for instance, we have people use breath work a lot because that is the, one of the fastest ways to change your body chemistry. Um, food takes a long time. 
to change it up. Thoughts can change your body chemistry really quickly, but they also can change it back really quickly. <laughs> but breathing seems to have a longer lasting effect. And so we'll have them do that. They will feel great afterwards. And how long that lasts, well, that may change depending on certain circumstances, but that's something that like depends upon the overall relaxation of the system. And so we can have them feel great. You, you can feel results pretty immediately. And you still got to keep training the system and then how long those results last takes time to build up. Yeah. So we start, I, I tell people like, first, let's create a puddle of pleasure. Okay. And then we'll, turn it, then we'll turn it into a pond and then we'll make a couple other puddles in the, in your day so that you're, you're not, there's not just one. And then we'll start to connect them with some rivers and lakes. And eventually we'll have like a bigger lake and then maybe a great lake and then maybe an ocean to where there's only a few islands where you're not feeling wonderful. And so, but we got to start with some puddles. That is a major paradigm shift, I think, for people, especially adults who are like, well, this is just adulthood. We're all miserable. We're all just trying to survive through the day. Like, this is a total shift on how life could be. It is. And it might be a valuable shift for kids to see. Like, I feel like the greatest gift a parent could give their children is to be a joyful human being. That, yeah, you can teach them how to write. You can teach them how to do math. You can teach them how to, you can teach them some basic survival skills. But beyond that, like, why would they want to stick around? Why are the suicide rates so high? Well, because they got nothing to look forward to. They're like, you should grow up and be like you, mom. And I don't mm-hmm. know. Why would I want to do that when I can sit here on my video game or I can sit here and chill with friends? And so I think suicide rates are very high because. One, the kids are dealing with stuff and they're getting bullied because junior high is the spawn of Satan or something. <laughs> <laughs> but also because they they don't see in adults the possibility of future happiness, really. They only see the chase for like external things most of the time. I just want to like pause right there. I think that that was such truth that came out. Like that's so important. And anyone tuning into this, just take a breath right now and just realize what you just said, I mean, that was incredible. It's so true. I mean, it's like we can spout, oh, you know, happiness and, and productivity and responsibility and all these things, but your children are watching you. They're watching you and they're sensing your energy every single day and they see all the weaknesses and they see all the great things. But yeah, like if you have that at the forefront of your mind, like this is my purpose, this is my mission, I think everything else falls into place. Everything else gets done. Yeah, I mean... When I was uh, my my oldest son, he was eight when I kind of came out of the addictive space and was working through some stuff. And then my next son, he was six. And the next one was like four. And they each had a different response to the way I was. And I wasn't being mean to them necessarily. I mean, maybe sometimes. But, I, you know, an adult who thinks that he's dumb and has to prove that he's smart. And so, like, he wins an argument with an eight-year-old who... Because that somehow proves he's intelligent. <laughs> We've all been there. <laughs> yeah. And um, and so, like, my oldest one, at a certain point, he was 11 when he was, like, he, he mentioned that he felt like he just didn't want to be alive. And he felt like it would be better if he were dead. And I was like, what is going on here? And then the next one was so angry, uh, had developed such anger that you couldn't really touch his body much. He was really su- super sensitive, but he would hit and he would bite and he would do these different things. And I, I won't say I was the only cause because there's a lot of factors in life, but I definitely, I mean, I, he was around me a lot. 
And it was when I started relaxing myself, the kids started to open up around me. And then when I started working with my body and showing them how to do it, all of a sudden, like there, they changed rapidly. So if you're hearing this as a parent, like, oh no, it's already grown. I've already messed them up. It's never too late. Like it really is never too late. The second you become a beacon of light and hope and joy, no matter what's going on around you, the second that that shows up, they notice and it starts to bring up this longing in them that they want that too. Yeah. And I'd argue too, like it, it not only heals the generation after you, but it can heal the generation that came before you, even if they're no longer here. Like I truly believe in, you know, generational healing. If you can do it right in the here and now, you can affect things that happened in the past, like on some plane, in some dimension, like that is actually happening. I mean, it's possible. I don't know. Um, but I think many times in the beginning, my wife and I were like, okay, whatever this is that I inherited, it stops here. Yeah. And if that ripples backwards several generations as well as forward, great. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's talk about your book a little bit, Built for Freedom. Um, who did you write it for and who would benefit most from reading it? So I wrote the book Built for Freedom to try and encapsulate in words as best I could what I had learned because it is so vastly at odds with uh what is out there in terms of help for emotional struggles, for chronic pain, for things like this. And there's a lot of people that I would hear over time that would say like, oh yeah, yeah, I've already done that. Oh yeah, I know it's a mind-body thing. But they weren't doing the same thing. They were still mm -hmm. kind of staying on the mind or they were treating the emotions and stuff or they were treating it as if it were a problem. And so I was like, how do I put this together? And my aim was for somebody who read that book to get to the end of it and realize wow, what, what if there's nothing actually wrong with me? What if all these experiences I've had are just a result of ways that I trained my system to learn? Obviously, it can learn how to do something. And so all I got to do is go entertain myself with some stuff that trains it to create happiness and well-being on autopilot instead of, you know, being a misery manufacturing machine. And I wanted that sense of like hope and help. I did embed in it some some of the breathing practices and some of the other stuff that that I do, but they're all in story form because I didn't want it to get lost in being a self-help book. Mm -hmm. What needed to happen was the paradigm shift. I'm currently writing a companion volume for all the people that are like, but what do I do? And I'm like, okay, yeah. here's the step-by-step -step process. So that'll be out later this year. But <laughs> But the book itself alone we've had many people just write back in and realize like they've so much has changed just in their approach to their own mental health and their well-being so it's really for anybody who feels like life is a drudgery whether that's a big drudgery and you're not sure if you want to check out or whether you're struggling with stress and like relationship struggles or whether you're you're deep in depression or whether you got some illness and you're feeling oppressed by life in some way, this is like an opportunity to flip the table and go like, oh, wait, what if, what if that's, what if there's more possible than I ever imagined? Right. Right. I was going to say, which is why there's just such a long subtitle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, but it's like, this is so powerful for adults, obviously, but again, like, could this be something that, um, you know, a middle schooler could read or a high schooler could read and gain benefit? Would you think that there's a level of understanding that could translate to someone way younger? 
So I have six children. Wow. My oldest is 17 and my youngest is seven. The seven-year-old is not at reading capacity to be able to grasp. <laughs> the nine-year-old, our little girl, is she's read snatches of it and enjoys it as like a gee whiz like collection. There's a lot of cool stories in it. There's like fighter pilot stories and plane crashes and weird science. Like I wrote it to be an enjoyable ride, you know? Mm-hmm. And um and then I've got like 12, 13 year olds that they can grasp it, but they have a smaller attention span. So only yeah. in pieces or some of the good parts that, but like 16, 17 years old and whatnot, like we've had, I've had kids that are younger be like, wow, this is such a good book. They'd like, I was driving my kid to gymnastics. He was 11, 12, and his friends are in the backseat. And one of them, I was just listening to it to make sure my audio voice was like correct. So I was like listening back to my own book and he was in the backseat and he told his mom, like, I want to order that book. Like, I think it's a treat. It's so cool. And so, you know, that's a 10, 11 year old. So it's possible even at that age that they could pick up some of it. But at least if the parents do, they've got stories to tell and they can translate it. Right. I don't know. The reason I think I keep going back to that is because I feel like there's such a need for the younger generation to have something like this and to have not even just the book, but just this way of thinking about problems and depression and stress and anxiety because I'm my oldest is in middle school right now and I talk to the other parents and so many kids are in therapy and so many kids are dealing with like extreme levels of anxiety where it's almost debilitating and so I know that they're getting help and I know that this is like the standard form of care but I really like what you're bringing to the table I really like the reframing and the paradigm shift that you're bringing because it is so different than what we've been fed our entire lives to the traditional medical system. Yeah. I would say to everybody, freedom is a skill. It's not a pill and it's a skill. We just haven't been taught, you know, but if we had a class on it in school, like simple breathing methods um, that I've worked with kids with on to just like, Oh, cool. I feel this way. Let me just, okay, relax that, move this, get myself feeling better and then be able to function yeah. All that stuff with kids is absolutely incredible. My oldest two have come to help me at the retreats that I run. And they're such, in, they're incredible human beings, like mm. way beyond their years, just because they've seen a lot, but they've also like learned and embodied a lot of this simple stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Well, we are coming up to the end of time here. A um, couple more questions. What do you want your legacy to be? When you are actually 90 years old, looking back. <laughs> when I finished writing the book uh, last year, I there was this moment I was like, okay, I can die and someone will be able to take this and run with it. Like, it's not just a secret inside of me anymore. What I would like to see in 90 years, like, I feel like most of the world's problems, maybe not all of them, but most of them boil back down to people are uncomfortable within themselves. And if we can teach them at a grassroots level how to be blissful by their own nature, regardless of their financial situation and socioeconomic status and friend groups and world events and anything else that they feel themselves like life is joyful, then domestic violence disappears, crime rates go down, like wars stop being declared because we feel like we got to argue with you. All that stuff happens when people are finally at peace within themselves. So that's what I'm working toward. I love that. Okay. And last question. What's something that either that we've talked about today or through your work or whatever that you feel called to share with the listener? What do you really want them to remember from this talk? There's nothing wrong with you. 
There never has been. There never will be. The life inside of you has no, there's nothing wrong with it, but your experience of it, that's negotiable. And so if it's been negative, that's just an experience. And if you can learn to make an experience that's negative, you can learn to make one that's positive as well. It just takes the right kind of tools. I love that. Bob, thank you so much for the work that you're doing, for spending some time with us today. Really a beautiful conversation. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, thank you as well. It was an honor. You have been listening to the Motherhood Unstressed podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to share it out, subscribe, and leave us a review. Till next time.